Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis. This episode was pre-recorded in early September and is scheduled for release on October 4th. Regular listeners might remember that I missed the last two shows because I was on vacation in Greece, and I'm still there, which is weird to say when I'm currently sitting in Alexandria, Virginia, but on October 4th, I will be in Greece. Much appreciation to my partner in crime, Todd Campbell, who is calling in today to do this episode with me today ahead of schedule. Todd, welcome to the show. Welcome uh, to you as well, and I hope you're enjoying your trip. Listeners, I tried to convince her to film from Greece, but no, no, she wasn't having it. You know, the the signal just wasn't very good, (laughs) future me told me. Anyway, so down to business. Something we see in the data on our Fool.com articles is that investors are super interested in dividend stocks, which makes sense. Owning shares of a dividend stock allows you to just sit back and passively bring in income, which is kind of nice. These stocks just pay you to be a shareholder. So, Todd, we'll do a quick primer for anyone who might be newer to dividend investing, and then we'll talk about some of our favorite dividend-paying stocks in the healthcare space. Sound good? Perfect. All righty. So, primer. Uh, I, I guess I already did a mini primer where dividend stocks pay you to own them. Something that I did want to mention as part of said primer was the dividend aristocrats. These are companies that have regularly increased their dividend payout for the past 25 years or more. And these are generally all around fantastic businesses. They, over time, have outperformed the S&P pretty significantly over the last three years, five years, 10 years, because these companies are very well established. They're they're none of your clinical stage biotechs that we love to talk about so much on these shows. Rather, they're companies that generate predictable cash flow year in and year out, and are thus able to take some of that and reward their shareholders. You know, Christine, studies have proven that dividend-paying stocks over time outperform their non-dividend-paying peers. And it makes sense, right? Because if you're reinvesting those dividends back into more shares, then theoretically, um, you're going to get a slightly better return. And I think that there's two reasons, therefore, that investors are kind of, well, there's multiple reasons that investors have formed up to dividend stocks. You've obviously got, you know, the potential for appreciation just on the on the stock itself. You've got the extra uh, return that you can get in the form of those dividend payments. And you've got a situation where, you know, your alternative sources of income from investing are really pretty small. I mean, with bond yields the way they are today because of of years of low interest rates, um, it's not that attractive to a lot of investors to go out and buy, say, short-term or mid-term treasury bonds. They'd much rather own uh, income-producing stocks, which can yield 1%, 2 or 3% higher than that. Unfortunately, these dividend-yielding stocks are also a somewhat safer play than non-dividend-yielding stocks. You see, if you look at history, that these stocks tend to sink less than the broad market does in bear markets. And so, it's a great way to minimize your downside risk without having to go completely safe style of investing. Um, For example, I have some numbers here. In 2008, the Dividend Aristocrats Index declined 22%, which sounds terrible until you look at the S&P 500, which declined 38%. So, this is a very safe way to play it. A lot of retirees are interested in this, and also people with a a long time horizon because you can reinvest the dividends. So, they're kind of great for everybody. Yeah, it smooths out your returns over time, right? They won't rise as much in a uh, rip-roaring 
uh, growth bull market, but they won't fall as much in the, in the bear market. And as especially as you get a little bit older and you're approaching retirement, you want to shift more of your assets to a slightly safer, quote unquote, investment. Uh, dividend stocks can make sense. And, you know, we talk about some of the, the, the best dividend stocks that are out there. And certainly there's dividend stocks that investors want to own across all sectors. I mean, you know, but I think that healthcare has always been considered one of those areas that investors want to concentrate on for uh, dividend paying stocks, because you do get that constant source of demand that's tied to the fact that, you know, the products sold by these companies aren't really, you know, elective. I mean, if, if you need to get surgery or if you need a medication, you need that medication. It's not like you're going to say, well, I'm just not going to take that right now. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to maybe something in the consumer discretionary sector where you don't really need to buy that new, I don't know, something in consumer goods. <laughs> Clearly not my sector. Maybe you'll come clothing. back and won't buy as many cans of Coca-Cola, right? Yes. <laughs> not, not as much Coke, not as many clothes. I don't know. Ask, ask Vince on Tuesday. Anyway, before we go into some of our favorite uh, healthcare dividend stocks, I do want to very quickly give definitions for two phrases that we might be using on this show. The first one is payout ratio, and the second one is cash dividend payout ratio. And it's pretty important to note the difference. So your payout ratio is just for every dollar of income, how much does the company pay out to its shareholders? Whereas the cash dividend payout ratio is take your dividends and you divide it by cash flow minus capital expenditures minus preferred dividends. That last part, not super important, but technically they need to be paid out before any regular dividends, so take them out as well. And the reason that you have to differentiate between the two of these is that earnings are calculated according to a ton of accounting rules. And sometimes that can obscure where the number comes from and where the company is actually getting its cash from and how much cash. So if you do the cash dividend payout ratio as opposed to the earnings uh, version, you will get a, a clearer picture of the company's cash flow situation as it relates to the cash that they're putting back in your pocket, which is a much healthier way of looking at sustainability. It's harder to do, and I think that's why people don't do it as much, but it's really important. Yeah, it's actually my my preferred way of evaluating dividend stocks, and they'll probably start off a firestorm of tweets, right? Because we're going to have this big debate between, you know, who what payout ratio is best? Uh, maybe use them both and lean on both of them. But I too tend, especially when you're talking about um, stocks that, that could have a lot of one-time items, acquisitions, divestitures, uh, legal sediments, all sorts of crazy stuff that could impact earnings over shorter periods of times. That can skew, in my opinion, the regular payout ratio. That's why I like to look at the cash flow situation better because cash flow really is the lifeblood, in my opinion, uh, that's going to be necessary to support those dividend payments. Yep, absolutely. So, with all of those background items out of the way, let's talk about our first company, which this might just be my favorite dividend stock out there. <laughs> and this one is Johnson & Johnson. I think I pitched this on a New Year's resolution show at the turn of 2016. I think we did a, an industry-focused theme week where each of the different hosts picked a dividend stock. And I, I chose Johnson & Johnson. 
And so I've been a shareholder of it since then, and I've been very happy to have this company. It's extremely reliable. It has such a large and diverse business that there's always interesting things for me to to learn about how the company is moving. And they have a super, super reliable dividend that has been growing annually for 55 straight years, which is incredible. Yeah, I think that, you know, you, you said reliable a couple times. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like that car that you always get in. You never have to worry about it starting and going places, right? You know, it has a very, it has a fairly diversified, diversified business model within healthcare, right? You've got the consumer goods business that does things like health and beauty, over-the-counter stuff that you'd pick up at your Rite Aid. Then you've got the pharmaceuticals business, which does things like, you know, makes drugs for use in HIV or makes drugs that help to uh, treat cancer. And then you've got medical devices, which uh, does things like um, surgical implants and, and, and surgical intervention. What you hear talked about the most with Johnson Johnson is the pharmaceutical division. That's because it's the largest. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, largest. It is. Okay, it is. just making sure. Uh, it is the largest division, and it also is the one that moves around the most. It has the most moving parts. For example, the, uh, one of the most important drugs that Johnson Johnson makes is called Remicade, and that's kind of on the decline. So, meanwhile, you're watching other newer drugs like Darzalex and Imbruvica make up for Remicade's decline. And so, they're the way that Johnson Johnson's pharmaceutical unit operates and the way it's talked about is most similar to every other big pharma out there that we discuss on the show. Yeah, they've got a ton, they spend a ton of money on R&D. The R&D kicks off a, a pipeline of products that can theoretically get launched that'll offset declining sales of older legacy drugs as they lose patent protection. Um, and then you've got the medical device and the consumer goods businesses, which are going to be, you know, also slow one to three to five percent growth year over year on any given quarter. Um, pharmaceuticals, like you said, that's going to be kind of the, the lever that moves growth either significantly higher or significantly lower. Uh, Remicade is a headwind and that's creates a, you know, right now. And because it's, it represents a fairly large portion of, of their pharmaceutical sales, that is going to depress a little bit their financials. But even with Remicade's headwind, you know, this company is still probably not going to uh, show significant revenue or profit declines uh, over the course of the next, you know, five years. And if you go out 10 or 15 years um, based on history, right? And of course, we all know that that there's some risks associated with, with basing on history. But if you base it on history, um, J&J has been one of those companies that rewards investors through thick and thin. And, you know, you got to love that 50 plus year dividend track record. Yeah, sustainability of the dividend is one of the most important components of it. It doesn't matter if a company is going to pay you 50% if it's only going to last two months and then fall apart. But Johnson & Johnson is the total opposite of that. They're yielding only 2.5%, which is that's not bad. But it is such a safe dividend. Their payout ratio and cash payout ratio are both right around 50%, which is a very safe range. Generally, we're looking for under 60% there. And they have a ton of cash on the books. They have a ton of drugs in the pipeline. They have firepower for acquisitions if they want. So this is not a dividend that's going to go anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, it's core holding. Yep, absolutely. So let's talk about a company that might be a little bit more exciting. They have a slightly higher uh, dividend yield. This one is AbbVie. Yeah, AbbVie is a very interesting stock. And I think that the higher dividend yield makes it jump out to investors who are looking for healthcare dividend paying 
uh, companies. However, there is a caveat to that higher dividend yield. Which is? Humira. Humira represents uh, the lion's share of AbbVie's sales. It's the top-selling drug in the world with $16 billion in in sales in 2016. And it represents, I want to say, 62% or something like that Mm -hmm. of AbbVie's sales. Yeah, Humira and what what happens with its patents will mean everything. Amgen already won U.S. approval for a biosimilar, which is like a generic version, to Humira last year. It hasn't yet launched this biosimilar yet because of a patent lawsuit filed by AbbVie. AbbVie's management says that they're very sure that they'll be able to fend off biosimilar competition through 2022. But that's kind of a big question mark. Do we take management's word for that? And even then, it's only through 2022. Right. I mean, they think that they're actually going to see Humira sales. We did a show on this, uh, I think it was in 2000, early 2016, Christine, we talked about it. We were just amazed. How does management come out and actually guide for sales to increase when they lose patent protection? But that just goes to show you, you know, the, the competitive advantage that Humira has. I mean, it's a dominant uh, uh player in autoimmune disease, across autoimmune disease. And it's sometimes, you know, doctors are very nervous about switching patients off of something that works uh, very well to something else. And since it's a complex biologic, that creates a whole nother, you know, that's a whole nother story because then you have to wonder, okay, well, how similar is a biosimilar to Humira? And how much, how willing am I to move this, this patient off of it? Um, I think that, you know, they're saying that Humira seals could probably climb up until you know, 2018, 19, 20, somewhere in there. Then they'll start to trade, you know, trade down a little bit. But, you know, Christine, this is one of those situations where it's not like it's a surprise to AbbVie's management, right? They've known that they're losing patent protection on this drug. And they've been working very hard over the last few years to try and diversify themselves into other indications, specifically into um, hepatitis C and into cancer as as a way of, I guess, you know, building out um, a, a company that can withstand any threat eventually to Humira. AbbVie has been a thorn in Gilead Sciences H. HCV side for a while now. Uh, I remember when the Akira pack first came out, that was the first time that Gilead Sciences faced serious competition to its, its HCV franchise. And AbbVie has not relented. Just recently, they got approval for a pangenotypic eight-week hepatitis C treatment, which if you've followed the space, you'll know that that's pretty impressive and that that is the best out there so far. So that could certainly be a a solid revenue driver for them, although there is also the argument that the population of hepatitis C patients is dwindling as some of the easiest to treat people have already been treated by some of the earlier drugs. Yeah, yeah. But I I think that you still have the ability to have this be a blockbuster category. And I think that you're still talking about billions up for grabs. And this is probably their best uh, threat so far to Gilead. Um, in the in it, a lot of it will come down to pricing and obviously what kind of deals each one of these companies is willing to make with payers. Um, but I think yeah, they, they're going to be a player in hepatitis C for a few more years at least, right? And um, they've already shown um, through their acquisition of Pharmacyclics a couple of years ago that they want to have uh, a really big presence in cancer. Um, you know, as a refresher, when they bought that company, that landed them 50% of Imbravica. Yes, which is a drug partnered with Johnson & Johnson, actually. So, yeah, that that's a huge drug uh, right now approved for blood cancer. I believe they're also studying it in some uh, label extensions as well. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you've got the potential out there. Some Somebody else have said that, you know, this could be sales could double from here because of those label expansions uh, for, for that drug. Um, so I think that that's something to keep an eye on. They're also got some interesting drugs in the pipeline, like Rova-T, which is being studied in um, in a form of lung cancer or, or solid tumor cancers, which is an intriguing drug. Um, they've got some interesting things going on uh, in, in, in autoimmune disease that may end up be produce a successor to Humira. So maybe they get to a point where, okay, we protected Humira till 2020. Now we've also got this other drug. We can start to transfer some of our patients to that instead. So, I mean, there are a lot of different levers that management is trying to, to I guess, move up and down to to blunt the, the, the risk. Yeah, and I, I think Abby's management right now sees its own stock as undervalued. If you look at their share repurchase history, they have been very generous with the buybacks. And I, I think that they're trying to take advantage a little bit of some of the market's skepticism that they'll be able to overcome the Humira hurdle and buyback shares now, which if management thinks that their own shares are cheap, eh, that's <laughs> maybe a, a sign that you might want to as well. They do have a really outstanding pipeline. I've seen it called the third best pipeline out there in biopharma for whatever that's worth. Um, they currently have a payout ratio and a cash payout ratio that are similarly just under 60%. They've got a solid amount of cash on the balance sheet. And I've, I've seen analysts say that they should be able to deliver an average annual earnings growth of around 14% over the next five years, which is pretty solid. Yeah. I mean, if you're a little bit more risk tolerant in your portfolio and in your income portfolio, you can make an argument that the shares are undervalued right now because of the risk to Humira. And if so, then you get a you get a nice you know two pronged attack on growth, right? You get both the chance for that shares to rise back up to where the value quote unquote should be, uh, plus you get that nice yield. And one other thing about Abby that we haven't mentioned yet, they sort of have 45 years of consecutive dividend hikes. The reason I say sort of is because that includes the period before the company was spun off by Abbott Labs. But if you include that history, which most people do, then this is another dividend aristocrat. So our third and final company that we want to highlight today is not a dividend aristocrat because they cut their dividends during the financial crisis, but this one is Pfizer, which yields just under 4%. Yeah, Pfizer is, uh, I'd put it in the middle of these three as far as on the risk spectrum. Pfizer has been dealing for years with the overhang of sliding sales tied to the patent expiration on what was once the best-selling drug in the world, Lipitor which um, you may know, Christine, and listeners may know, as being the most widely used statin um, for lowering bad, uh, bad cholesterol. That was a $14 billion a year drug at one point, and obviously losing patent protection on it created a very big uh, headwind to try and overcome for this company. It appears, appears that they may be finally turning the corner now, and if so, getting back to growth. And if they're getting back to growth and cash flow, you know, trends up because of all the restructuring and all the costs that they they exed out of their system over the last seven years, then that dividend could expand. Yeah, Pfizer was the poster child for the patent cliff when a ton of its drugs lost their patent protection and had their sales eaten away by generic competition. 
So Lipitor lost its patent in 2011. And so when I mentioned that uh, Pfizer had to cut its dividend during the financial crisis, this was largely due to a ginormous $68 billion acquisition of Wyeth at a time when capital was kind of hard to come by. And so they had to cut their dividends. And it's actually taken until early this year to get back to the pre-Wyeth acquisition payout levels. Um, but it's something that they kind of had to do back then. They were facing 14 total patent expirations through 2014. That was going to be $35 billion in lost revenue. So this company had to buy growth. They also had to have organic growth. And they're finally starting to, to get back on their feet. And I, I think they look pretty strong right now. It was the right move. I really do think it was the right move. I mean, you you, you have famous investors who like Buffett who have come out in the past and said, I don't really like necessarily dividend stocks would rather have companies that, you know, can reinvest in themselves and, and get bigger that way instead. And I think that Pfizer had to make a decision. It had to make a decision, do I continue to try and and uh, and find the money somewhere in the budget to pay this dividend, or do I reallocate that money to R&D and acquisitions? And as a result, it's on very stable financial ground now. I mean, it's got one of the, the, the best balance sheets out there in pharmaceuticals. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago, right, that they were proposing $160 billion merger and acquisition. Which is uh, so insane. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so they have a tremendous amount of financial flexibility. And, and, and they, they don't have $160 billion in cash. I, I will point that out. They have $14 billion. <laughs> But still, I mean, if they were to make that, if they had been able to make that Allergan acquisition when they're looking at it, low interest debt is so much easier to come by now. So yes, they do have more firepower. Yeah. it's Financial flexibility is the key. And you know they're, they're leaner and they're meaner than they were before. Um, sales could come in between 52 and 54 billion this year. If so, that's that's a, a, a start in the right direction upward from where they were last year. Uh, earnings are growing more quickly than revenue because of all that cost cutting they did, um, and and you know the yield is the yield is fine and the payout ratios are fine. Um, I think that this this is a company that is uh, is worth taking a little bit of risk on, and you know we really even have dived into the dived into the, the the potential for things like you know their biosimilars pipeline, which they bought when they acquired Hospira, or the potential to continue to expand in cancer, which they've done through um, buying Medivation uh, more recently. Yep, they've got 32 different late-stage clinical programs. I know that nine of them are for one single drug in different cancers. Another four of the 32 are for biosimilars. So all of these different areas that you've mentioned are places where they're not just dabbling, but they're pushing pretty hard, and they have late-stage candidates that will hopefully hit the market very soon and continue to drive growth. Time will tell, right? I mean, but but even so, I mean, listen, inve income investors have to look at stocks the same way I think that regular investors do, which is that you have to consider the business first, right? If you look at these, all three of these names, look at the business first. Do you believe that the business is in a position to continue to kick off increasingly more cash flow? If you believe that, then it's worth investing in it because more cash flow will mean bigger dividend payouts. If you don't believe that, then don't invest in these stocks. Yeah, no matter what the dividend yield is. Correct. And I think that that's a risk that a, a, a thing that many investors who are new to income investing, they, they chase the yield. They say, oh, this is a high dividend yielding stock. I got to buy it. Forgetting that the business itself is more important than the yield. Yep, absolutely. It takes a little bit more time to do that research, but that's why you have us and hopefully uh, helping you out on this show and all of the great articles written by Todd Campbell and the like on fool.com. Todd, thanks so much for joining me today. 
And folks, thanks for listening. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harages. Thanks for listening and Fool on.